0: great to see you here this morning. I know you've enjoyed the worship uh, this morning and uh, just uh, reflecting on who God is. I want us to turn in the Bible this morning, our Bibles, to Psalm 73, and we're going to be looking at that. Let me just say that before we get started, we uh, appreciate so much you just being here, and I want you to know before I preach, I do love you. (laughs) I mean, I do love you, but I don't have to warn you or anything like that. But um, I know that um, many of us here, perhaps, or are visiting here, uh, maybe for the first time, any of you. And we do have a thing called a little get together called Dinner with the Pastor uh, this afternoon at 5 o'clock. And it's a time where you can come and, and meet some of the pastors that are here, including myself. And I just share with you a little bit about my life, about the church, have a little dinner, real laid back time, uh, no pressure to join or anything like that, just to kind of a get acquainted time. And uh, we'll be meeting out here in the atrium. So if you've not signed up for that, we do need to know about that before you leave here today. And so be sure to put that on your little welcome card. And uh, we'll look at that after the service and make sure there's enough food here for you tonight. Nice meal and a really nice time with some people that are like you. They're maybe kicking the tires a little bit of the church. You just want to get to know some people and um, give me a chance to get to know you as well. And so we're going to take the Bible this morning and turn to Psalm 73 and begin a new series of messages. It's going to be a mini-series, and it has to do with the book that um, we're about ready to publish here in the next week or two. In fact, next week we're going to launch the book. My publisher wanted to have a day of launching uh, here at the church, and so we're going to do that, which is pretty customary. And I've been able to write um, parts of a lot of books, devotional books, over the years. Been privileged to do that with Dr. Johnny Hunt and uh, Thomas Nelson Publishers. But there's only one book that I've written all by myself. It's a book on prayer. Some of you uh, get that as a freebie in your bag, and... Um, your, your gift bag every, every week. But uh, this book is being published by uh, Christian Literature Crusade, and the publishers are um, um, putting it together. And so it's taken a few years to get it through. And so the reason I wanted to tell you that especially um, so grateful for you today is that uh, you've given me a, a sabbatical, a little a small sabbatical, the last couple of years. It's allowed me to get started on the book and kind of finish the book up, and then it's taken about a year to Uh, to actually edit it and publish it, and so it's coming out next week. And so I'm I'm looking at um, at really just preaching uh, three messages. And, for example, Psalm 73 is not even in the book, as far as what I can remember. But I've learned a lot of things uh, in the last year, and so I want to share some of those things with you tonight or this morning, but also just talk about a little bit about what's in the book as well because um, this is not just a book I've written. It comes from my life. I really feel like that if you're thinking about... Uh, quitting anything at all, uh, you need to read this book first. I think it will be a, a great encouragement to you. But in looking at this, one of the one of the reasons why I was inspired to do that, do this book, is because, like many other pastors, I preached on courageous faith so many times, and I've stood up here and just t- ask you to say, "Hey, look, get down deep with God and faith with God, and have some courage to step out on faith and do something great." you know, be a a giant's killer or a lion tamer, you know, lion taming faith, the great faith of Hebrews chapter 11 and all that stuff. But, you know, it's difficult to say, hey, I, I want that giant killing faith and do something great for God, when in reality, it's tough just to make it through the day and have enough faith and courage to deal with life's adversities day to day to day. And there's a story that Ron Dunn tells about his own personal life. Ron Dunn is one of my favorite pastors and, uh, um, and evangelists of all time. Great preacher. He's with the Lord now. But at one um, time in his life, way back in the 1970s, 1980s, his son, Ronnie, was diagnosed as bipolar. They'd been praying about what to do for a, for a while because he had seemed very depressed. He was going through some great struggles in life. And they took him to a doctor, and finally they found out what was going on, and they were so happy about that. And they gave him some medication. He got just fine. He was doing good. He was going to go on with his dream about being called to the ministry. And But one day, Ronnie got really, uh, a period of time, got really confident about how he was feeling and left off his medicine for a while. They didn't, Ron and his wife did not know that, and they went off to a revival meeting, and when they got back, Ronnie had committed suicide how do you get over something like that how do you deal with I'm not even sure if he ever really got over it he dealt with it as best he could but he said the heartbreaking thing if you can if you can think of anything worse pile this on top of it there was a group of people because he was pastoring at the time MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church in Fort Worth Texas and there was a group of people there that his close friends and each one of them had a son they were praying for for different reasons and all five of them had something going on in their life. And he said, at the end of the day, four of them, their prayers were answered. Their sons got okay, including the couple of them that were really rebellious. And here's what he said in his book. He said, while he answered the prayers of others, God seemed to ignore our prayers. Boy, that's shocking, isn't it? And you think to yourself, you know, this guy, he shouldn't have even been preaching And you're sitting back there and thinking, that's that's just kind of outrageous. In fact, it's embarrassing. Pastor, don't you know that we have people in here today that don't know anything about the Bible? They're seeking out the Lord. And and you're saying something like that. And and my goodness, what are they going to think? See, it's raw, isn't it? It's just shocking. It's raw for someone to feel that way about God. And he's really, he dealt with spiritual vertigo in his life. Now, in Psalm 73, we read about a guy experiencing just that, the doubt and the spiritual vertigo in his own personal life. Now, the Psalms are different from other places in the Bible. Some, uh, some Bible passages and books are about doctrine. Some are about history. These, these Psalms are about feelings, feelings. Now, when we think about feelings, there's three different ways, basically, we can deal with them. One is a religious way, and that's when we feel kind of shocked by it all. We don't want to talk about it. You know, I don't want to talk about my doubts. If somebody's going to think I'm a, unspiritual, I don't want to blaspheme God or anything like that to think, hey, uh, you know, like Ron Dunn evidently did. I don't want to do that kind of stuff. So let's don't talk about our doubts. It's just everything's great. Everything's rosy. We have joy in our life. It's okay. We'll go through adversity, and, boy, we're just going to come out an overcomer. But, you know, sometimes you just don't feel that way. Well, there's a secular way of dealing with it, and that is feelings become supreme. They become kind of sovereign. You know, I, felt in, I fell in love with this girl, and so I left my wife to go with this girl. Well, it's just all about your feelings. That's okay, says the secular world, because you've got to go with love. You've got to go with your feelings. Or I felt I was this kind of person, so I had to act in this way. Of course you had to act in that way. You're, you felt like you were that kind of person. Then there's the psalmist way of dealing with things, and that is they were praying their feelings. That's what the psalms are. They're praying out, they're crying out to God with their own personal feelings. And Asaph here is doubting God. He knows. Now, Asaph knows about God. He knows God. He knows all the facts about God. And intellectually, he he understands all that, but his feelings, his emotions are not following God his thoughts, and his real true beliefs about God. He's suffering spiritual vertigo. So what is that? What is spiritual vertigo? Number two, what are the causes? Number three, what do we do about it? First of all, whats what are we talking about when we talk about spiritual vertigo? Look with me in verse one. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of The wicked. Notice the word, I, or the the phrase, I saw. Um, My title of this book came from an experience I had several years ago. One of my sons was involved in one of those year-round basketball teams, you know, in the Oviedo area. Basically, you have to choose a sport by the time you're, you know, three, you know, or something. And just concentrate on that and play it year-round, you know, if you want to be, you know, in the uh, NBA or something or NFL. And so you have to concentrate on one sport. So he was in high school. He played for this basketball team, played 50 out of 52 weeks out of the year. So you know when summer came around, he still had to play ball. And so I stayed back with him, and the rest of the family went to Georgia to visit grandparents, which you should always do. But anyway, (laughs) I won't get into that. So uh, they went to visit grandparents, and we stayed back. And so we decided to play golf one day, and it's in July. So you know what that means, right? Total insanity. Why would you want to do that, you know? It's so hot out there. And so I did. I kept myself hydrated with Diet Coke (laughs) instead of water. So all that caffeine really drained it out of me, and I was just spent by the end of the day. I went to bed that night. I woke up in the middle of the night. Now, get a picture. Pam's not around. I'm in the bed by myself, and I'm experiencing physical vertigo. The ceiling seemed to come right at me. I st- the whole room was kind of spinning around and around. Every time I moved, I was nauseous. And every time I moved, I felt like I was going to express that nauseousness, if you know what I'm saying. I was sick, and I'd never felt this way before in my entire life. And I thought, I-, I know this sounds irrational, but I was just waking up, and I thought, am I dying? Am I dying? I've never felt this. I mean, the whole thing was just spinning around. My, my brain felt like things were just passing before my eyes. And I reached over and took the phone, one of those landlines, you know, <laughs> you know if you remember those. And I reached over and got the phone, dial 911. The paramedics came and got me and took me to the hospital. And they rushed me to the hospital. I was in trouble. They gave me an IV and put the fluids back into my system, and I was pretty much okay. And within a couple of days, I was fine. Now, I was experiencing physical vertigo. So when you look that up and you think, well, what is physical vertigo? Well, it's when your brain cannot process what your eyes are seeing. So what is spiritual vertigo? Spiritual vertigo is when your faith cannot process what you see, hear, or experience. You know what the Bible teaches. You know deep down intellectually and spiritually what you believe but you just can't see it. Your faith cannot process what is actually taking place in your life. The unanswered prayers, the the death of someone that you love, the suffering that you're going through physically, the the financial setbacks that you may be experiencing in life, you just don't get it. You just are off, knocked off your spiritual balance. As I said a few weeks ago, as God convicted my heart about one particular verse in the Bible that's hardest for me, the hardest to live by than any other verse, is Hebrews 11:6. 6. It's a challenge every day. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, if I believed that verse every day, I wouldn't have any stress in life. All I had to do was seek God, and if I sought God, God would take care of the rest of it. No need to stress, no need to worry, no no need to have spiritual vertigo in my life, but I don't always live that. It's difficult when you see things happening and and life is coming at you. It's sort of like what I I said about my friend uh, a few weeks ago, and some of you were kind of put off by that. I could tell that he said, hey, look, I've been through all this in my life, and I've been following God, and I know my father, and heaven is my spiritual father, but I treat my kids a lot better than he treats his. That's raw. Raw feelings that we're dealing with, and it can happen to anybody. Now, I don't know much about Asaph. He's not talked about very much in the Bible, but I do know he wrote Scripture. It can happen to somebody who wrote Scripture. I mean, how many of us here have written Scripture? Anybody here? Don't raise your hand. We do have security here. Just thought I'd let you know that. (laughs) Um, no, nobody has, you know, that's not one of my bucket list things. Well, before I die, I want to write some scripture. Nobody here has written, but yet a biblical writer had spiritual vertigo. What about Sarah, the wife of Abraham? Remember her story? She laughed at God because she heard the angel of the Lord say that she was going to conceive at the age of 90 years old? She laughed at God. What about Moses at the burning bush? God appeared to him and said, go into Egypt and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And he says, not me, God. Not me. I'm not not your guy. Spiritual vertigo in his own life. Intellectually, you know what to believe, but now you're seeing face to face. And the difference is this. I'm not talking here so much about the guy who says, look, I refuse to believe in God because of the suffering that's going on in the world, the injustice in the world. I understand that that may be something that you deal with, honestly. And a lot of times people deal with that because of something that, uh, you know, they just don't want to believe in God. And so they say, what about this? What about the Christian crusades? And what about suffering? But there's other people that deal with this, both as Christian and non-Christian, not because there's suffering somewhere out there. There's just some suffering right here. It's a feeling. It's the loss of a sister when you prayed and prayed and prayed. It's the loss of a marriage when you prayed and prayed and prayed. When you followed God with all of your heart and this happened and this, it's something personal. Notice he says in verse 2 or verse 3, he says, I saw. There's something personal here with Asaph. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, and then we could read on in, in the next 10 verses, and he goes over and over and over again, his bitterness, his anger with God, he says, God, you just keep blessing these wicked people. What about me? What about me? See, it's personal to him. It's not an intellectual thing. It is something that's in the heart. So what, are the, what causes this? What was wrong with Asaph? Because he said in verse 1, Surely God is good to the Israel, to those who are pure in heart, those who are seeking God. He says, but as for me, he says... My foot came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Now, here's here's the thing. He's saying to us, He says, My foot was on something, and we can just say it's a rock because there's nothing but rocks in the Holy Land. There's no real dirt, it's all rock. You know, you can't walk barefoot very well in the Holy Land because it's just one pebble after another. And so here he finds he's on a slope, and he has his foot firmly planted on a rock. But then he says, I begin to get dizzy, and I almost stumbled. I'm experiencing spiritual vertigo in my life. I, I almost stumbled off the rock. What's the problem? Two things. One is a misplaced foot, and the other was misunderstood faith. What do I mean by a misplaced foot? Here's here's a newsflash. You never, you and I never have to deal with trying to choose between belief and unbelief. There's no such thing. We believe in something. Our foot is firmly planted on something. It may not be God. It may be something else. It may be self, believing in yourself. It may be believing in something else, believing in money, believing in, you know, if I just have enough power. Your foot Is on something. And the problem is, our foot gets placed on the wrong thing. Something else is Lord in our life. Something else is on the throne of our life. Something else is what we lean on, the foundation to life, that which gives us a sure footedness. Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount said, If you go by these teachings of mine, I will compare you to a person who built his house upon a rock. And the storms came and the winds blew. And great was the storm, and great was the fall. Or rather, rather the house did not fall. Why? He said, because it was founded upon a rock. He said, but if you don't do these things of mine, I will compare you to a person who built his house upon the sand. The winds came, the hurricane came along, the tornadoes blew, and great was the fall of the house because it was not founded upon the rock. Just sand. Same house, same rooms, same decoration, same look. One was on the rock of Jesus Christ, our rock, our sure foundation, the Bible calls him our cornerstone, and one really didn't have a foundation at all. They, they just picked out something, something in their life to put their foot upon, some belief, some God, some treasure they've had in their life. Um, a few years ago, I, a couple of years ago, I gave this illustration with a $20 bill, and I can tell you More people paid attention to a 20 than there are a 1, you know, coming into this illustration. How much is this? This uh, little bill here has 1 on it. How much is this worth? Somebody tell me. $1. Are you sure? How do you know? How do you know it's worth $1? Because it says 1. The U.S. Treasury has placed a value on this piece of paper. It's $1. Now, I can tell you that this piece of paper, no matter how precious it is, is probably worth less than a penny. They pay less than a penny for the paper. Uh, You buy it in bulk, and heaven knows our government buys this stuff in bulk. Uh, But I'm just saying, (coughs) probably shouldn't be saying, but, you know, I am saying. uh, You know, so what about the ink? Oh, the ink is priceless, right? No, the ink, less than a penny, a worth of ink. And so there's this piece of paper is worth less than a penny. But yet our government says it's worth a dollar yeah here's a an artist he paints a picture in fact he paints a lot of them can't sell them for nothing he can't give them away he dies and all of a sudden the paintings become priceless what's changed said, so, oh well you know the oil went up oil's going up and no it's the canvas they're so expensive these days must be the framing. No, someone, someone has said that's a treasure. And they assign the value. You and I assign values to our foundation, to our treasure in life. Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be also and vice versa. So we assign what's going to be the treasure in our life. It's the same place we're placing our foot. This is the most important thing in my life. Now what, what happens what happens when we place our foot on the wrong thing? When our treasure is in the wrong thing, it becomes supreme in our life. We choose to make that supreme in our life. Therefore, it begins, we begin to have confidence and faith in that thing, and it begins to control our life. And so that's kind of our, our little idol. It could be something good. It could be our family. But it could also be a sport. It could be money. It could be a job. It could be fame. It could be success we men are guilty of that a lot. You know, who I am, what I accomplish. And so what, what happens? Well, when I don't accomplish, then I look up to God and say, God, why, why, you, why didn't you bless my God? I beg your pardon. Why didn't you bless my idol? Here I am trying to do the best I can. I'm working real hard. And all I ever ask you to do is make me successful. And you haven't made me successful. What's the problem, God? The problem is, why in the world would God want to bless your idol? idol when it'll just keep sending you down the wrong path so there's a misplaced foot here anytime I'm afraid of losing something chances are that's an idol in my life anytime in fact I I wrote an uh, I didn't write an article I read an article excuse me about a guy says says that the greatest idol in the church is fear well that's not true because to worship to be have an idol you got to worship that you got to put it first And maybe fear is first, but fear really reveals what our idol is. It's not an idol in itself. If you fear more than anything else losing money, then there's something there, security, money, uh, prosperity, whatever it is. There's some other God there. So when we misplace our foot, what are we going to have? Spiritual vertigo. Because, my goodness, I should be blessed here. I've been following God. There should be no reason why I have suffering in my life. And because I'm having suffering in my life, God must have abandoned me. Second thing is, we have a misunderstanding of faith. Let me share what I mean by that. If I, somebody here would say, Pastor, I just wish you would preach a sermon, maybe a whole series, on the second coming of Christ. I've been asked that before. And so I said, well, uh, I'll think about that. I, I will pray about that. Well, God doesn't lead me to do that, and a year later you come back and say, well, you know, you tell somebody in your your small group, well, the pastor's a liar. You you can't believe the pastor. Why? Well, he said, he promised me faithfully that he would preach on the second coming of Christ, whole series, and he hadn't done it yet. Well, did I promise that? No, I just said I'd think about it. But we put that off on God. God, this is something I really want in life. I want to be popular God, I'm not popular, so what good are you? Getting raw about it, just for a moment. Well, God, I, I wanted this much money. I wanted success in my life. And God, you promised it, but I don't have it. Did he really promise you that? Is there anything in the Bible that says God, God has promised you what you want in, in your life, this particular thing you're thinking about even right now? Has he promised? You see, that's just expectations of God. It's not real faith. The Bible teaches in Hebrews 11 that basically faith is taking God at his word. And when you take God at his word, things begin to change in your life. Faith becomes then something that you're trusting God that he has actually promised. Now, Guinness has said it best. He said faith is between two worlds. If I were to say it's a tension between the no longer and the not yet. The past Pointing to the future, you've got to have the past in faith before you can look toward the future. That's why in the Old Testament you'll find so many guys preaching. I mean, rather, when they start praying, they start praying and and just start buttering up God. It looks like they say, "God, you've done this for Israel and this and this and this." They're not buttering up God like I used to think. What they're doing is building up their own faith. They're looking at what has gone on in the past, and because what's going on in the past, They think over and over No, God, you blessed me here, you've blessed me here, you died on the cross for my sins, you, you drew me with your spirit, you saved me, you have answered this prayer and this prayer and this prayer, and you've blessed my life here and I'm still alive there. Over and over and over again, you begin to look at what God has done, and therefore, you can look toward the future. Now, when you look to the past, you look to the past with gratitude, and it changes the whole perspective of the expectation deal. Um, the first, the third funeral I, I ever um, had to do was at my first church. I was 25 years old at the time, and it was a little boy by the name of Robin who was five years old. And he was at our vacation Bible school one summer. In fact, I'd only been at the church for probably about two or three weeks, I think, and um, he then, um, the very next week, he was over a friend's house, he was on his tricycle, going down the sidewalk, a drunk driver came off the road and killed him, five years old, I didn't know the parents very well, they just visited our church, and um, I had to preach the funeral, what do you say, five years old, and here's what God gave me, he said, the problem to everybody, including you, Dwayne, is that you're looking at Robin's life as though he should have been living 70 years or 80 years. I mean, the Bible says three score and 10, that's 70 years. So we'll say 70 years old. If somebody lives to be 70 years old, a lot of times we'll say, well, he passed away, you know, but he lived a good life. He lived a good life. The anything short of that was he had sort of taken early, kind of taken early. And so we're looking at Robin's 65 years that he lost because we expected him to live for 70 years instead of being grateful for the five years that he was here. When the Bible says, no one is guaranteed another day. The Bible says that it's appointed once for a person to die. And so some people live to be a year old, five years old, some 50 years old, some 100 years old. And some beyond that. It's different for everybody. The Bible's not promised us any certain number of years. So instead of being Grateful for the five years. After all, the the family, the couple, the doctor said you could never have children at all, and they had one. And later, God blessed them again with another, and that young man's grown today. But five years. Instead of being grateful for that, we lament over the 65 years we think, we expected, that maybe he lost. Here's what thanksgiving does for you. The best way to illustrate this is to say, okay, suppose you are a lawyer and uh, your friend has committed a murder, supposedly, alleged, but everybody says, the police says says to you, he's he's guilty. We've got the DNA samples. We've got this. We've got an eyewitness. We've got all these things. It's an open and shut case, but he's still denying it, but we know he's guilty. Everybody believes he's guilty. His wife believes he's guilty. And you think, oh, no, I've known this guy all my life. He can't be guilty. He's just not. I talked to him the day before. We had this heart-to-heart discussion the day after when we didn't even know this person was murdered. There's no way he could, I believe in this person. I believe in him. So because you believe in him, you begin to turn over every stone. You begin to think about the DNA, and you take the case, and you say, no, I know, I know he's he's innocent, and I'm going to prove it. Now, we know That everything in your life that's going on maybe is the truth. You're not making it up. You're not making up all the adversity that you're going through. It's actually true, but it's just not the whole truth. And because you've looked at the past, and because you know God in a very intimate way, you know he's innocent. He has not abandoned you. He he has not left you. He is still blessing your life. You don't understand what's going on. But you can trust him and you can wait on him because the evidence is far going to outweigh everything else and he's going to be able to prove that he's innocent to you. That's faith. Even in the midst of adversity, even in in the midst of truth that's happening to your life and mine, we still can place our faith in him with confidence because we understand the tension between the no longer and the not yet. So what can we do about it in closing? let me give you three or four things. First of all, this is a starting place, at least. We realize everyone experiences vertigo. Notice he says here, but it's for me. Even Asaph experienced that. Remember what Thomas in the New Testament, one of the disciples of Jesus, and um, the rest of the disciples saw Jesus and they said, we've seen the risen Lord. He says, I won't believe it until I see the nail prints in his hands. Remember the story? Jesus came to Thomas and said, Behold, the nail prints. And he made the greatest confession, maybe of all of the New Testament. When he bowed down to him, he said, My Lord and my God. You see, he started out with uncertainty. He, he, under, he, he started out with his doubts and ended in certainty and clarity. Sometimes when we start off with certainty, we don't ever ask the questions. We end up one day in doubt. First of all, you you look to him. Secondly, you remember the works of God. Look in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Notice in verse um, 25. Whom I have in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We look back and remember the works of God. And what's the best place to remember but the cross? The Bible says in Romans, if God did not spare his own son, will he not with it freely give you all things? We come to the cross. Paul says, I glory in nothing, I boast in nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ, where he died for me which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We remember the Lord. We remember the works that he's done. The no longer to point to the not yet. Do you remember what he's done for you? Do you remember the cross? Do you remember the time that you reached out and received Jesus into your heart? What an emotional, uplifting experience that was when you felt so abandoned and so alone and he reached out and touched you, that same Savior is with you today. Then thirdly, you got to reposition your foot. What is your foot on? What rock do you find? Again, there's no no choice between belief and unbelief. There's a choice of what you're going to believe in. What is your foot resting upon? What foundation do you really have in life? It's like the story Bob Buford tells with um, life coach marketer Michael Cammie. he came to Michael Cammie, who's atheist at the time at least and he said bob buford said you know i've been in cable tv all these years i've made a lot of money but now i'm i'm ready to go in a separate direction i'm i'm it's half time in my life and i'm taking the second half in a new direction altogether and he says i need you to help me plan that And so Michael came and began to listen to him, and he says, okay, Bob, here's the thing. There's two things that keep coming up in our conversation over and over and over again. One is money, and the other is Jesus Christ. And he drew a circle um, on a piece of paper, and he says, now, Bob, I want you to write down for me the number one thing in your life, whether it's money or Jesus Christ, and be careful because they're opposite things sometimes. They're different, and whatever you put down in the circle is going to dictate the plan that we um, have it for your life. Well, without what do you do? You're a Christian. The guy doesn't believe in God. You put down Jesus Christ. But he said, "As I Bob Buford said, as I wrote that, I realized that I had never made that demonstrative, overall, overarching commitment that everything in my life from then on out." will be led by the Lord. So as we're drawing a circle in your own mind, what's going to be in the middle? What is the most important thing? What is the foundation? What is the treasure of your life? What's going to be in the circle? Because that will determine whether you wrestle with spiritual vertigo the rest of your life, or if you come to the place of real victory over your doubts. And then fourthly, realize this. Very encouraging word here that the psalmist gives us at the end. He says, verse 21, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. But listen to what he says. I was like a beast before you. I was so angry. I was a beast. But he says this, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have not you have rather taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. You see, through it all, through all of our doubts, through all of our questions, God never lets go of our hand. I love the, the hymn, the old hymn, The Solid Rock. And the second verse goes like this When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Isn't that great? If you know that, just say it. You don't have to sing it. Say it with me. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. You feel like you're in darkness? God still has your hand. You know, Jesus on the cross, this is beautiful, beautiful thing here, when Jesus was on the cross, He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At that moment, Jesus took on your sins and mine. And God withdrew his hand from Jesus. The Father withdrew his hand from his Son. He felt abandoned. Now, I believe that Jesus understood that that would happen to him when he left heaven. I just don't think he could, he could not comprehend the experience of what it would feel like to take on the sins of the world and knowing your father was no longer connected for a moment emotionally, that he had withdrawn his hand. But here's the beauty. God the Father withdrew his hand from the Son for a moment that he would never have to withdraw his hand from you. He took on your sin. He took on my sin as well. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on God's unchanging grace. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So where does your foot lie today? All of us experience spiritual vertigo. We learn so much through it. But you can come out victorious, trusting God on the other side. But it just depends. Where are you going to place your foot? Your hand's in his. Where's your foot? With heads bowed and eyes closed. This morning, know that Jesus Christ did die on the cross for your sins. And because of that, he was abandoned by his Father for a moment, just for you. And because of what he's done for you on the cross... He's going to live victoriously through you for the rest of your life as we trust him. Have you trusted him? Have you placed your foot upon him, the sure foundation, with heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, no one moving around at the quietness of this moment? Would you right now, by faith, ask the Lord to speak right now to your heart as you speak to him? Would you pray this prayer with me silently right now as I pray aloud. It goes like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying there for my sins. Open up the door of my heart. I ask you to come in. Please forgive me of all my sins and make me the person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name. With heads bowed and eyes closed right now as we stand together, here's the invitation. If you prayed that prayer, let's stand quietly together even right now, if you prayed that prayer to invite Christ into your heart, I want you to take one of these staff members by the hand and just say, hey, I prayed that prayer with the pastor. I want to know how to stand on that rock. I want to know how to grow as as a believer. You come. We'll pray for you and we'll help you. The altar is open. If you'd like to come, rededicate your life in any way, pray for someone else right now. The movement is forward right now, okay? You come this way right now. Heads bowed, eyes closed. As the band leads us, you come.